Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Anjali Nathupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler, colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option. The only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please practice excellent self and community care while listening. Are you noticing an astounding mismatch? between how egregiously we're getting shafted as a people versus our mostly overwhelming res- un- our mostly underwhelming response what's up with that remember when we were covering direct action and i said that's one of the only ways we'll really know what we're talking about well Apathy gets in the way of direct action. So we've got to knock that out of the way to know what's possible and just to know more broadly. What breeds passivity then? Let's talk about professionalization, trauma responses, zombification, and the subduing effect of believing in representational politics. These are but a few of many contributing factors that are alive and well today, unfortunately. So let's start with professionalization. This is a massive component of people's political inaction. Thinking that the way to get ahead is what's commonly called selling out. Have you ever found yourself doing this or maybe one of your loved ones? So it's premised on us being divided and conquered. When our loved ones invest substantial time and energy in a job, thinking it's gonna give them security. Have you noticed how individualistic that mentality is? It's not exactly strategic from the perspective of us organizers who care about collective liberation, not just taking care of ourselves or our loved ones. So as one counter, even entrepreneurs understand that you have way less control when you're in a situation with a boss, say, and can be subjected to layoffs, to firing, and all the other negative consequences of not controlling the means of production. Essentially, People thinking money is gonna protect them is erroneous. 
especially for oppressed peoples. This has been researched, by the way. Professor Dr. Jared Ball's 2020 book, The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power, details this exquisitely. And as well, Dr. Robert Allen's 1969 classic text, Black Awakening and Capitalist America, also helps people understand this mythology. If you haven't had the gift of learning from these two books, please check them out at your earliest convenience. And as an aside, I encourage you to consider listening to lectures available for free online if you're unable to read the books themselves. So this right pressure to professionalize can look like buying into the lie that desk jobs and cubicles are somehow according us more security than farming, for example, or other forms of manual labor that could actually materially support food sovereignty or security, doing body work perhaps, right, or something that could materially support our healing. Although much of this desk work, right, isn't actually materially useful in the world, and the manual labor sometimes is, have you been impacted by that colonized idea of having made it, so to speak, right, as if accountants have more valuable skills to contribute to our communities than farmers? This is incredibly popular. And yet, at the end of the day, it's rooted in an abstract theory that's unmoored from our bodies and from the planet. That unto itself is a powerful sort of right trap that we'd be well advised to pay attention to. And let's be honest, how many of us are going to be in cubicles in our decolonized futures? What's up, Portia? So good to see you. Welcome. So uh, good to see you. Welcome. And so let's get our minds out of that gutter so we can vision more expansively. Because the thing is, right, institutional affiliations are also really relevant to people being more apathetic than they might be otherwise in the political sphere. So dishonesty can actually get perpetuated on a massive scale via institutional affiliations. What on earth does this mean? Many folks can compromise their awareness and speech and honesty and praxis for the sake of getting their foot in the door of certain institutions, possibly in the name of changing said system from the inside, so to speak. Have you ever heard anybody advocate that? So for those of us, right, that are a little strategically minded, maybe if you have a background in community organizing, the thing is what we know, right, is that say in a place like the settler colonial US, more of our loved ones are likely to opt for making a change from within, so to speak, than outside of the system. So for those of us that are open to positioning ourselves flexibly, there's something to be said for operating outside of the system to the fullest extent that that's even realistic. So for example, when I was doing my graduate degrees, it was for the knowledge, the research skills, added legitimacy for my activism, and other other reasons that have little to do with presuming that credentials or a professorship were some golden ticket to security or safety. And in this world, that would be inaccurate to believe. 
Now, at the prospect of calling professionalism into question, some folks might say, but would people act unethically in the absence of professionalism? But the thing is, it's actually a sham to couple professionalism with ethics. Professionalism doesn't monopolize ethics. Indeed, it can actually get in the way of being ethical. Alas, though, right, so many of our social movements have been professionalized, right? Hence my consistently inviting folks, if you haven't fully internalized the gift that is, right, the anthology that's called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded Beyond the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. This history is laid out magnificently there, right, which is so important for us to understand, right, carrots being dangled in front of activists and organizers that could have been supporting collective liberation so much more effectively, right, through organizing, right, that are then directed out of movements, right, with the promise of different incentives or rewards. So we've really got to be on the lookout for that, especially if you've been tempted by it or if someone that you know might be tempted by that. It's super common, right? So here's where I would invite us to do a decolonial take on professionalism to see what that yields, right? And of course, one incredible inspiration in this way, right, is Dr. Franz Omar Fanon, right? So plenty of y'all have heard me tell, right, a little bit of his bio for many years, but I know it might be new to many of y'all. It really merits thinking through, right? So he was a medical professional, right? And he spent a good deal of, right, one of his most famous texts, The Wretched of the Earth, sharing case studies, right, of what was described as mental disorders at the time emerging from, right, folks being subjugated, especially in Northern Africa, to colonial conditions and to war, especially in the context of, right, the French occupation of Algeria. So here's an example of a revolutionary psychiatrist who realized it wasn't just his patients who needed changing in order to reintroduce them back into society, right? So in order to do justice, right, to the so-called patients that he had taken an oath to serve, he realized wait a minute, Algeria needs decolonizing. So here's the most well-known, right, decolonial theorist and revolutionary, possibly in world history, right? And he had been, right, serving as a psychiatrist in Tunis, right, since 1957, after he actually got kicked out of Algeria. He was teaching university courses on social psychopathology, right? And in his classes, students, medical doctors, academics, Algerian militants, politicians would come through, right? But he actually ended up resigning from his position, right, at the hospital that he was working at, saying it wasn't possible for him ethically to just want to support oppressed people's being disalienated because he realized under conditions of oppression for us to be alienated from those conditions is one of the most vibrant life-affirming right healthy quote-unquote survival instincts within us 
So he literally said, quote, right, and talking about in particular, right, Algerians that were, right, being subjected to French colonialism, right, quote, to put them back in their place in a country in which non-right inequality and murder are erected into legislative principles where the native who's permanently alienated in his own country lives in a state of absolute depersonalization? No, right? In his right resignation letter, he even said, quote, right, choosing to right, put down this professional prestige and status he had to literally take up arms to support this decolonial movement. He said, quote, if psychiatry is the medical technique that endeavors to enable individuals to cease being foreign to their environment, I owe it to myself to state that the Arab, permanently alienated in his own country, lives in a state of absolute depersonalization, end quote, as in, right, colonialism is what caused the original alienation. So if these professionals pretend to care about alienation, their target needs to be colonialism and their praxis needs to be decolonizing, right? So as you can imagine, some of his professional colleagues didn't like, right, what they framed as his sociological take on so-called mental illness, of course, because it invited them into a deeper ethical praxis, right? Not just saying, oh, we have an oath, we're doing great work, right? Don't think about society or politics or economics, right? Just go to your job and then you can go to sleep at night feeling great, right? With a clean conscience. He's like, no, I've studied. I'm paying attention to the stories, right, that are being told to me by folks, right, that are devastated and inconsolable because their ancestral land was just stolen from them by the French or because they saw, right, people in their community being murdered. He's like, I'm not about to try to reintroduce them to society, right, if an, a society is that oppressive and pretend like that's somehow supporting them. It's not, right? So he realized Hang on a second, these right Northern African psychiatric institutions that he's working in were founded in the colonial period, were based on racist premises, and were aiding colonization. So then he chose to opt out of participating in those institutions as a professional. So I'm curious, right, to ask y'all a bit of a question for reflection. How can you imagine that these insights might be relevant today or could be applied today? What might they mean, for example, for your area of work? Feel free to let me know in the comments if you have some initial sense. So you can see here, right, he was not into this hyper-individualism, right? He advocated, right, the changing of society and not just focusing on individuals within his job or within his profession. Uh, and the thing is, right, we're so socialized to focus on the individual, right? That thinking systemically, right? The way that Fanon is inviting us to can be much harder for those of us in a place like say the settler colonial US. 
So to balance, right, if we're in such a hyper-individualistic context where people are groomed to think that you don't have to engage politically, just focus on yourself, right? That's what's natural, that's what's normal, right? To balance, we've got to focus more on systems, right? So instead of, say, individuals in therapy just trying to reintroduce themselves to, right, an oppressive society, right, recognizing that can actually be disempowering, right? And so really going there ethically and noticing what the political implications are, right, of whatever it is that we are contributing to within our jobs, within our vacations, within our professions. Because the thing is, thinking that professional success, like if Anon was just to have continued, right, teaching at the university and working as a psychiatrist, right, thinking that's going to save you or other people, right, can be a massively false form of consciousness, right? And the thing is, false consciousness, to use the political term, is a kind of untruth that leads to incorrect action from a decolonial perspective, if you ask me, or seeming inaction like apathy. Grace sharing, this resonates so much with my experience becoming a public defender and then the nonprofit industrial complex. I'll believe it. Um, and so many, right, of our loved ones have been subjected to this kind of collective hypnosis, right, where folks are not necessarily active participants within their lives. Have any of y'all ever gotten caught up in that? Or maybe do you know a loved one that might be right now? So maybe they're just, say, going to a job, right? And then when they get home, possibly sitting in front of a screen, passing out, waking up, doing it all over again, with their vitality possibly dissipating, right? The spark in their eye slowly but surely, right, dissipating, right? And not as much alive to, right, possibility and their potential and their promise as could otherwise be the case. And relatedly, a lot of people seem to limit themselves because they're concerned about being perceived as allegedly controversial, right? Uh, or in sharing deinstitutionalizing ethics. So you can say that again, right? Because the thing is, this mainstream status quo doesn't monopolize our understanding of ethics. Hence, again, my call for us to think through, right, and vision what would a decolonial take on professionalism look like, right? What are our understandings of ethics so that that entire framework isn't just getting monopolized by oppressive paradigms? What even is that, right? Uh, and so do you know anyone that might be afraid of being perceived as controversial, right? Because that could harm their professional prospects or they might get in trouble at work. So they try to fade into the background. And even if we see, right, that modeled and we're pressured to do so, it's still unethical and dangerous, if you ask me. What's also a trip about capitalism, right, selling us, right, things based off of the desire to be seen as different is or to stand out or to embody distinction. A lot of our loved ones, right, think I'm just going to work at my job and then I can feel some sense of, right, distinction standing out, right, through consumerism without recognizing that's a pretty vapid, shallow, consumerist, regressive interpretation, right, 
compared to what we're capable of imagining, right, when it comes to different modes of approaching those concepts, right? Portia sharing why I never appear professional, <laughs> thank you, right? Or Oriental Poppy sharing, right, I'm a fader, but this is all forcing me to change. Ooh, that's one of my greatest prayers, right? And I've seen this among school teachers. It's super common. And you see how it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't, even if you and your communities are the ones that are getting screwed over, right? If we still have bought into this hyper-individualism, a lot of folks will be like, yeah, but I can't lose my job, so I'm not gonna, right, stand out. That's dangerous, right? Hence the need for us to massively, systemically intervene on that front, right? Instead of just being divided and conquered at the outset. So if someone wants to be seen as different or standing out, they can do something decent to fulfill that objective, right? Or instead of just getting, right, totally co-opted, that sentiment, right, being co-opted by consumerism. Um, and, you know, on this front, uh, one of the ways that people can talk about, right, or understand people's apathy in the face of injustice, right, is also oftentimes talked about through the lens of people being zombies, right, or zombification. Uh, and so this language is originally West African, although it's more recently widely associated with Haiti. Um, and I'm curious to ask y'all, what if everything that you know about zombies is wrong? And in a way that makes it more likely for you to get zombified. Now, this might sound fictional, but it's not. How about we get into that? And so in this way, right, you're probably familiar with the zombie craze in movies, in TV shows, in media more broadly, especially within the past 20 years or so. The plots typically go a little something like this. There's a zombie invasion and people have to fight them off so that their brains don't get eaten. Eating brains? So you can't think anymore? Hmm, do you notice that detail? Let's hold on to it for a minute while we take it back historically. So the first Hollywood movie about zombies came out actually during the U.S. invasion of, right, and military occupation of Haiti, almost at this point a century ago, actually. Uh, and so there's actually a lot for us to get into here in terms of how, right, language and stories about zombies play into people's apathy or a lack thereof. So to start to get into that, Portia sharing brains have been devoured, right? Uh, how about we actually listen to a little excerpt, right, of Fela Kuti's song Zombie, released in 1977, that was a critique of the Nigerian army. Super relevant for today, right, in terms of what is taking place in Nigeria. Uh, and, right, so it's important also just to share a little bit of context, right? So partially in retaliation for this song and Fela popularizing a critique of the Nigerian army, they actually burned his home, the Calicuta Republic, to the ground and they murdered his mother, right? So again, I just want to ground in, right, here's one interpretation, right, of zombies that is explicitly politicized and then we can do a little comparing and contrasting compared to those, right, sort of Walking Dead disinfo campaigns. <laughs> so how about we just have um, a little bit of a listen, just for a few seconds. I hope y'all are familiar with this epic song, but if not, you're gonna wanna check it out in full. 
12 minutes long and again if you're not familiar with it I seriously invite you to scope it out uh, let's just look at a few of the lyrics right that y'all just heard so you can see here right again look at how politicized this is again talking about soldiers in the Nigerian army right zombie no go go unless you tell him to go zombie no go stop unless you tell him to stop zombie no go turn unless you tell him to turn zombie no go think unless you tell him to think right and then some of the other lyrics include, right, go and kill, go and die, right? And so just wanting to bring that in, right, as especially from the African continent, right, one way that this languaging about zombies as, right, people that are dutifully and docilely following orders, right, has been interpreted and with substantial, right, political consequences. Um, and I bring this up because you know what? I don't see any of, right, that kind of, right, political critique of just towing the party line within the status quo in the way that people are talking about zombies in the settler colonial U.S. So I could actually share that in my master's program back in 2008, I took a class that was called Gender in the African Diaspora in the Americas. And several books that I read during that course were authored by researchers who are practitioners of Vidzu or voodoo and were explaining some of the little known history related to zombies, right? Historically and in terms of mythology. So as an aside, I'm super curious to see, right, if y'all are familiar with any of the history that I'm about to share. Because again, zombies are practically this national obsession and people talk about them so often. But again, I practically never see some of this kind of history coming up right, or its political implications, which are super important for us to understand, right? And in this way, it might be a bit of a case study in abstraction and people just sloppily interpreting things however they want in a way that's totally historically oblivious, like Tahitian and other Caribbean and Black and Indigenous scholars. So please take note of that. And again, I'm not Haitian nor a practitioner of Vudzu, so I'm using this language of zombification super loosely. But just from the research in one graduate course, I can see through the misleading errors that are 99% of the way that people talk about zombies, right? Um, and how counter-revolutionary it actually is. So the thing is, right, if we look to some of these movies and TV shows, right, so often, right, it's we're being programmed to be afraid of one individual zombie attacking you, right? And folks have been programmed to fear racialized attackers, right? Are you noticing this hyper-individualism, right, within these mainstream mythologies? We've definitely got cultural reference for that, right? Uh, so realizing that, you know, it's not an unjust system you've got to actually fear that could be turning you into a zombie. No, you need to be afraid of individual zombies attacking you. But the thing is, you know what? People actually couldn't have misrepresented the historical archive 
more effectively if they tried. There's a power dynamic that's totally getting invisibilized here. So during the plantation period in Aiti, right, there was a particular concoction, right, of psychotropic, right, ingredients that were given to people that essentially rendered them passive manual labor, right, that were, right, psychically or mentally incapacitated, but that were more easily controlled by the plantation-owning class. And so actually, historically, right, folks in Aitsi were afraid of being zombified by this, right, owning class that didn't want them thinking, right, eating your brains, remember what we were talking about earlier, and specifically because they wanted them to be an easily controllable, docile labor force. You see how different that story is, right, than what we hear in this mainstream Hollywood propaganda? It doesn't even have to be intentional. It's probably not with this zombie craze. But again, that political right, power dynamic is completely getting obscured, right? So I would invite us to, right, consider Felicuti's, right, understanding of zombification a little bit more than, say, The Walking Dead, right? And the thing is, again, taking it back a century, right, whether it's the U.S. government, whether it's the media industries, right, they're saturating us with these misrepresentations, right? And we could hypothesize about whether or not, right, that initial wave of zombie movies, right, um, the kind of pulp fiction, right, that was perpetuating this mythology during the period of U.S. military occupation, right, could have had something to do with galvanizing public support, right, within the U.S. and diminishing any political critique of, right, that U.S. military operation. Um, Portia sharing such a missing important piece, right, and Let's Be Scary Diamond sharing the trope of zombies being infectious didn't start till around the 60s or 70s. You you see, isn't it so important, right, this kind of storyline, that piece about, right, needing to be afraid of some infectious other without any kind of, right, awareness of power, for it to be as pernicious of a cultural narrative as it is within our broader collective imaginary seriously uh, merits noticing, right? And the thing is, right, there is absolutely, right, this kind of, right, presentation of within a lot of these forms of storytelling, right, the Vudu religion as, right, being sinister or bewitching or this vehicle, right, for turning innocent individuals into passive, right, zombies who lack any will of their own. So a bunch of scholars have actually investigated, right, these zombification, right, narratives that are getting glamorized, especially in the horror film genre. Uh, and while actually on a quest to obtain empirical evidence, right, that's authenticating this kind of obscure, right, component of Haitian history, obscure in the U.S. anyways, for most folks. Uh, and so, right, one of the things that it's important for me to name is especially, for example, the Puerto Rican professor, Dr. Elizabeth Parvanisi Gerbert writes, right, in a piece that she authored that's called Women Possessed, eroticism and exoticism in the representation of woman as zombie that quote, these are images we've come to associate with the outsider's gaze 
bent on making an other of the Caribbean native, end quote. So it's interesting, right, that there are a few less kind of hyperbolic depictions that are given space to emerge within the mainstream that might tell a very different story politically, right? So I, and we could continue on, right? So she asserts, for example, quote, the enduring power of the images these films conjure is evident in our recognition of them as tropes that encapsulate certain ways of looking at the cultural and religious syncretism of the African Caribbean as exotic, foreign, quote, unknowable, end quote, and ultimately expendable, end quote. Uh, so the thing is, right, these impacts are latent regardless of whether or not people are paying attention to them, right? How that kind of exoticizing and othering can get reinscribed, this kind of sensationalizing gaze, right? And so a lot more that we could get into right around that. Um, but more broadly, again, if y'all were unfamiliar with that history, I just really want to bring up, again, this is history and that emerged, right, during a plantation period where, right, literal overseers and plantation owners were trying to breed docility into people. Um, and so just wanting to put that out there as we continue to get into, right, some of the forms of storytelling that can also encourage us to, right, maybe just be afraid of individuals but not engage in any kind of system change or even know that institutions need changing. Uh, I'd also want to bring up, right, like I mentioned earlier, this irrational belief in representative democracy, using that term very loosely, or politics more broadly, because it can structurally condone apathy. And it's a sham, right? It's astoundingly unsubstantiated historically, actually, right? And so it's got us thinking that if we represent, right, somebody, if somebody is representing us, frankly, right, they'll advocate for us. You don't have to directly advocate for yourself. And the way that that's twisted, for sure in the settler colonial US today is trash, right? And the effects are laid bare by the atrocities that we're waiting in right now. That can frankly be a deeply disempowering understanding of how change operates. And right, there are great examples to counter that kind of apathy, whether it's right examples of resisting evictions, right, like what's happening right now at Red House, right, an occupied Chinook territory in so-called Portland, Oregon, um, that might become more relevant for us with the eviction moratorium being lifted on January 21st, 2020, right? Uh, lots of other amazing examples we could look at, the actions that have been taking place in France within the past few weeks, the largest strike in world's history, right, that's currently taking place in India. Uh, but the thing is, right, if people aren't even oriented towards realizing that that's what we need to be able to support collective liberation, then they're much less likely to engage in it, right? So there are, right, real questions that lots of people have been asking for a long time, my whole life, about where the strikes are in the U.S., right? Why is it that labor is not getting organized? What's up with workers being so overwhelmingly apathetic? Not everyone for sure, but millions of our loved ones. Uh, and so it's also important to acknowledge, right, whether it's with the labor movement or so many others, right, they're practically non-existent if we compare them to earlier moments in settler colonial U.S. history and to other parts of the world right now. 
And I know that some folks might hear this and were pressured to get kind of Pollyanna kind of quickly, right? Countering like there has been activity, but we've got to state the problem to be able to solve it, right? That's fundamentally positive, not finding some silver lining on the Titanic, right? Because we have agency, we can change things right now, right? So that kind of Pollyanna-ish approach, right? Can detract us from being more honest. Uh, and so somewhat similar, right, to what we've been getting into is the way that people can talk about passivity. I'm not as into that language when we talk about apathy because it can also be super individualistic, right? Um, and it can oftentimes get framed in this binary with activity, right, that especially shows up in these sexist forms of storytelling that theorists call essentialism. Like, there are, right, men and women, and men are active and women are passive. Have y'all ever heard anything like that, right? Portia sharing, I get sad because there are no labor songs sung anymore. You can say that again, right? And this is why it's so important for me to be naming this because so many of our loved ones don't have a historical context to realize, right, how comparatively speaking throughout time and space, right, the planet or history, right, overwhelmingly people are apathetic as fuck in the settler colonial U.S. right now. So again, if people get Pollyanna and they're like, oh, but this, oh, but that, yeah, we're not going to invisibilize our labor, clearly, <laughs> right, but it's important to zoom out and be able to perceive that forest, right, for the trees in front of us, like, epic organizing, tons of groups and people have been doing, right, to even be able to get how dire our situation is, right? Uh, and Portia sharing, that was a huge cultural connector. Yes, you learn them from old folks, yes. Uh, and, you know, also it's important for us to talk about, right, how trauma responses can also, right, contribute to specifically, right, people's apathy or, right, inaction politically more broadly. And, of course, that language of trauma is super medicalized. There are other forms of language that we could use, too. And one thing I'd want to share around this is, have y'all ever heard people say things like, oh, everybody is traumatized. Everybody has trauma. So watering down that language language to the point of meaninglessness, right? I really want to discourage us from doing this because it's so pervasive these days in ways that are horrific, right? For those of y'all that actually have, right, trauma in your bodies, right? It's deeply disrespectful. <laughs> I could share for myself, like, oh, really? Like, y'all also wake up in the middle of the night screaming from nightmares? Like, if you don't have, if we're going to use this medicalized language, right, symptoms, of trauma, then people need to stop being so sloppy in their language. Because I don't know if y'all have noticed this. Thank you, right? Flora Fridge sharing trauma is not a monolithic concept, right? Eva sharing, yes. The thing about that is that kind of sloppiness gets exploited on a regular basis in very predictable ways. That I've also had a hard life, thus don't you dare try to hold me accountable. Oh, we can name that for what it is and also notice who is talking so sloppily about trauma, right? And to fulfill what objective, right? What are the material consequences of those kinds of speech acts? So again, when I get into trauma responses here, it's important for us to be precise with our languaging instead of just saying, right, oh, well, something hard happened to me, so this definitely applies for me, so I get to never lift a finger again. 
that's not what I'm talking about at all. And again, I've seen that so much since the language of trauma has become much more hip within the past decade in a way that is unapologetically counter-revolutionary. Um, and I don't see people acknowledging that anywhere near as often as is important. So I really invite all of us to be on the lookout for that, right? Uh, and so precisely, right, Flora Fridge sharing, conflict is not abuse, right? So again, so often on that front, it's like, are we even going to differentiate, right? Because within the literature, right, if we're going to actually be rooted, uh, just because you've experienced trauma doesn't mean that you're actually traumatized, right? And so again, people really need to be much more precise if we're going to get into this. Right. But right for those of us, say, that are survivors of violence, such as myself. Right. I wonder if any of y'all have also noticed, right, the way that it seems like, right, some people, right, and predatory institutions, right, very reliably bank off of, right, some of us getting into certain trauma responses, right, like freezing, for example, right, and getting stuck in a frozen state, right, almost like a deer in headlights, right, like anticipating they'll just get catatonic fast enough, right, that we can continue screwing someone over in whatever way, shape, or form somebody is, right, experiencing violence violence, right, whether it's administrative violence or whether it's, say, in an interpersonal context. Um, and so it's really important, right, for us to pause and to see, right, if we have experienced trauma, if we do live with, right, again, what gets medicalized to say post-traumatic stress, right, chronic or complex post-traumatic stress, right, is learned helplessness, relevant for us, right? Or even in, right, the text, the body keeps the score, right? If y'all are not familiar with that, right, there is some, right, framing of, right, numbing out, making it less likely that we'll protect ourselves. So I'll say it again, and this is one of the sort of preeminent texts, right, although we can definitely critique it in certain ways, and its author, right, the body keeps the score, right, gets into how when people numb out, it makes it less likely that we'll protect ourselves. What's that mean for us politically? Can we pause just to consider for a moment, right? So again, for those of us that do live with, right, post-traumatic stress, that no numbing, right, within our bodies, or if you have loved ones that have experienced this, what would be the political implications of that when we zoom out and imagine collectively, right? Flora Fridge sharing, I notice a lot of people co-opt language of trauma-informed ideology. You can say that again, right? Whenever any of these frameworks become these, right, hip buzzwords or are literally used as marketing lingo, yeah, we've got to not just, right, celebrate people invoking some languaging, but take it a move further and be actively discerning to see what are you doing with that language, right? Because it's not celebratory if it's like, someone said the word decolonization, awesome. They could be deceiving us using that word. That into itself is not a cause to celebrate. We've got to be discerning where it is all at all available to us, right? Um, so wanting to bring that in. Um, and also, so just to zoom out more broadly, have any of y'all heard, right, this idea that the cost of inaction is sometimes greater than the cost of action, right? What an important reminder to hold dear for the rest of our lives. 
where might this be relevant? So how about we say climate catastrophe? So here's a great example, right? Not taking drastic immediate measures to right, stop the oil and gas industry from right, more right, extractivism or vampirism, that's going to haunt us for generations to come, whether we acknowledge it or not, right? Hence, for example, the, even the title, right, of the Muslim-Palestinian activist Linda Sarsour's book being called, We Are Not Here to Be Bystanders, right? So the more that we can just normalize and naturalize that awareness, Hopefully that can be a salve in the face of the kind of political negligence that is so mainstream, right? So moving from that kind of right zombified, right obedient docility that so many of our loved ones, right, are really waiting in in this moment, right? And something else I want to share actually is that one dimension of that zombification is fatalism. I wonder if any of y'all ever feel fatalistic. And if so, I'd invite you to pause and to consider, if so, when and under what conditions. So I share this invitation to reflect for the following reason. Oppression impacts our psyches and it in part normalizes and naturalizes jadedness, bitterness, cynicism, feeling like it's natural to throw in the towel and to throw up our hands and to say there's no hope, why bother, to give up, right? Who and what benefits from that? Who and what doesn't benefit from that? Those are questions we could reflect upon also. There's no bypassing this, right? We've got to contend with it. So Dr. Bruce Levine, for example, right, said of defeatism, quote, Freire, referencing Paulo Freire, right, author of Pedagogy of the Oppressed, Freire recognized that a certain psychology of oppression in which the downtrodden become fatalistic, believing they're powerless to alter their circumstances, thus becoming resigned to their situation, end quote, is something we've really got to be on the lookout for in a situation like this moment in history. Portia sharing, I used to feel fatalistic. Um, so here's one quick way to see through that lie, right, that many of our loved ones can get wrapped up in, this idea that we can't possibly make a difference. So the thing is, the world is changing every single day. People are changing the world every single day. The question is, in which direction are they changing the world? There's no neutral, right? Hence the title of the people's historian, Professor Howard Zinn's book, you can't be neutral on a moving train. There is no neutral. So to support folks remembering that might have forgotten via the collective hypnosis that millions of our beloveds, right, are still sort of captivated by, right, the question is, no, you're definitely not being neutral, just say going to a job or just participating in the economy or, right, being a consumer under capitalism. We've got to ask, what are the impacts of the actions that we're taking, right? Also, what are the impacts of our inactions? This might not be a comfortable conversation, for sure. Uh, and you know, actually, on this front, I would like for us to touch upon privilege briefly, because um, some people say, and I wonder if any of y'all have heard this, actually, right? Some people have the privilege to be apathetic. Have you ever heard of similar sentiments? 
Uh, now, that's absolutely right, true in some capacity. So, for example, I was on a panel earlier this year where a middle-class South Asian went out of her way to coddle the audience, saying something to the effect of, you don't have to be revolutionary. As if that was deep, instead of just parroting status quo programming. And sure, if she has food security and is less likely to experience police brutality, she has the choice to opt out of ethics, presumably. Yet there's also an element of false consciousness in the idea that overprivileged people get to be apathetic because it reduces massive questions of justice and decolonization down to identities. So this is why outside of the global north, Many of our loved ones who are activists fighting for decolonization actually refrain from using privilege theory. So this is kind of like when the Dakota professor, Dr. Kim Talbert, articulates this by saying, quote, I write, quote, identity, end quote, with scare quotes because I refuse that word when possible. It is individualistic and actually anti-relational. And I wouldn't be surprised if this might be a new framework for folks, because especially for right progressives, for so-called right leftists, liberals, right, let alone say maybe socialists, anarchists, folks who are here for decolonization, right, the language of right identity is so normalized in our movements, right, and the language of identity politics is quite often right celebrated in a way that almost presumes that it just neatly maps onto right our movements for a collective liberation. However, I would actually really invite us to right discern a little bit more deeply around that. Um, there's a ton to get into on that front, right? Moving forward if and when the time is right. Um, but you know what that notion that say privileged people get to be apathetic it's also actually unrealistic in some areas that I'd love to see more people demonstrating an awareness of. What do I mean by this? So for those of us who have empathy, solidarity is partially how empathy is materially demonstrated in the world. Actions speak louder than words. Or for those of us who understand that an injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, riffing off Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., right? Even coarse self-interest requires activism then. Even if you just wanted to be selfish, you need to make sure that other folks are taken care of, right? And for those of us who have ethics or a moral compass or a spiritual or religious tradition that involves principles, you show up when someone is being treated unfairly. I advocate these framings to support people with unearned privilege understanding that if they can, they have to engage in material activism if they see themselves as decent and not blatantly hypocritical. I'm using language that's clear, right, because that can be helpful when we are in a sea of coddling inaction, often in ways that front as niceness, like the moment that we're in right now. Right? And I can certainly share here, right, so many personal stories, right, as someone especially that has many years behind the orange curtain in so-called Orange County, California, right, which is this serious, right, hipster haven, 
Uh, and so there's really something to be said for right apathy getting rendered right cool within right hipster scenes and other sites of right postmodernism and poststructuralism more broadly to invoke that theory for folks for whom right that's beneficial. Um, this kind of postmodernist blasé, right, of giving no fucks, right? Like some of us were raised with, for example, with movies like, right, Fast Times at Ridgemont High or whatever it is, right? This notion that giving no fucks is somehow romantic, right? It gets put on a pedestal, right, by folks that don't seem to have realized that we could be giving all the right fucks about our values, about our principles, about justice, balance, consent, collective access, care, ecology, self-determination, and so on and so forth, right? And so this is why, in part, right, in Wretched of the Earth, the Afro-Indigenous revolutionary and scholar, Dr. Franz Fanon, wrote, quote, decolonization never takes place unnoticed, for it influences individuals and modifies them fundamentally. It transforms spectators crushed with their inessentiality into privileged actors with the grandiose glare of history's floodlights upon them, end quote. When passive spectators decolonize, they're transformed into historical actors. We can get into this living of our purpose, of our promise, of our principles. Decolonization non-negotiably requires that. It is not a passive endeavor like Fanon is pointing out explicitly for us here. And in closing, I actually want to share a note on mortality. So if you haven't confronted your mortality, this can engender apathy. Sometimes this sounds like, I'll prioritize my purpose a little bit later though, like volunteering once I retire, or I'll contemplate my legacy, but after this next promotion at work. Have you ever gotten caught in that popular way of thinking? It's super common in the settler colonial US and other societies that are death avoidant. This is often partially why it can be so devastating when people die untimely deaths if they weren't living their lives fully. Acting on the awareness that tomorrow's not a given for any of us. And this way, maturity can also be a salve in the face of apathy. I know that for me, Honoring my mother's untimely death 13 years ago this week is possibly one of my greatest inspirations to act now on what I care about. Not even just seeing her die in her 50s, but also with my grandmother and others that I've seen die with unrequited dreams. One of the ways I honor those whose lives right, have passed prematurely is to live every day as fully as possible, doing what I materially can to bring about the changes we so desperately need right now, 
Portia sharing, yes, my doctor friend who wanted to wait till she's retired to volunteer to help kids in the internment camps. This is such a common mentality. It's so deeply programmed within hegemonic storytelling. So the thing is, when my time comes to go, I want to hopefully be able to look back on my life and not regret any inaction. The miracle of our being alive is not to be squandered on apathy. I pray that y'all will take that to heart. And as we begin to wrap up, I encourage y'all to actually pause, if you can, to integrate some of the ideas that I've shared before jumping into whatever you've got going on next in your day. And also, if you found any of these ideas beneficial, I encourage you to share them out with your communities in the event that it might be supportive for someone else. Please let me know your reflections in the comments. I would seriously appreciate hearing from y'all around this, what br it brought up, what it might have evoked. Um, and if y'all are able to make any kind of donation via PayPal, via Patreon, to be able to keep up this insurgent intellectual production. This is literally the only way this happens. Liberation Spring has no grants. We have no foundation funding, right? I have no trust, nor familial, nor right partner support. It is y'all. Uh, and also please don't plagiarize. So give me a shout out if you want to riff off of these ideas. I would also just share in closing that Saturday is actually the end of this series. So, you know, I sincerely hope to see y'all on Saturday to be able to get into the medicine that can be non-conformity when we're in an unjust setting. Thank you all so much for listening. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Anjali Nathupadhyaya, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comments section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to hear on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud or iTunes, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic or to donate to the project, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. The power of the people is louder than the evil, deceitful and coward. People in power are power to the people. It's the hour of the peaceful. Freedom is ours. Yeah. Freedom is ours.